how valuable is HTMA or hair trace mineral analysis for nutritional status testing? This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. All right, the winning question comes from Lauren F., whose question has 30 votes, and it is, how useful is HTMA testing, hair tissue mineral analysis, for monitoring mineral and heavy metals in the body, storage of them, how much is being used, excreted? I've seen more practitioners using it lately, but also skeptical about some resources out there about it. I am going to answer this question primarily from the perspective of nutritional status testing, because that is much more in my expertise than heavy metal testing. And I wrote an an ebook called Testing Nutritional Status, the Ultimate Cheat Sheet, where I give my complete system for managing nutritional status with dietary analysis, lab testing, and signs and symptom analysis. And what you'll see in there is that there is a role for hair mineral, uh, hair trace mineral analysis, or HTMA, as an optional add-on in the comprehensive screening. And the rationale for this is basically that there are some nutrients, like particularly the ultra-trace minerals, where we just don't have well-validated markers, and there really aren't very good commercial tests. And so you might as well throw this in as a way to capture some of that, even though the hair mineral analysis is not very well-validated testing. Because there is no well-validated alternative, the hair mineral analysis will capture in a fairly cost-efficient manner just some data on some of those other some of those ultra trace minerals for which there are not very good validated tests. And then there is some value in edge cases where, for example, Maybe your serum copper is very low and you have a copper transporter defect that raises your hair copper. If you run that, you might catch that earlier. Um, whereas, and you might, you, might have a, you might have a clue towards uh, Wilson's disease, for example, if you've measured serum copper and serum plasmin and you calculate the so-called free copper from that. Uh, but if you didn't do that and you have low serum copper that doesn't respond even to high doses of copper, you may very well have Wilson's disease and you might have seen that faster if you had caught the hair copper in the hair trace mineral analysis. So that's where I see the utility in my system. Now, when I designed this system, what I was looking for was what constitutes a good marker of nutritional status. And I believe what constitutes a good marker of nutritional status is that the marker has been very well validated in depletion-repletion studies, which are studies where we take people and we say, okay, let us systematically take a group of people, put them on a zinc-deficient diet, 
and let's watch all the zinc markers change the longer they're on the zinc deficient diet. Let's keep it until they start developing symptoms of zinc deficiency. Let's see what markers change in a reliable manner as correlates of that symptomatic change. And then before we do anything dangerous, we start repleting them with zinc, reverse the process, get them back to normalcy, and watch how those markers change in reverse. Then we say, okay, which markers could have predicted that symptoms were coming soon before they actually came? What markers and what thresholds for, for those markers tell us that someone is in a clinically manifesting state of zinc deficiency? And then what markers tell us that the repletion strategy is working and can we use to predict that we are on the way to go back to a normal, healthy level of whole body zinc in a state that is free of zinc deficiency symptoms? Now, we don't have that for everything. Um, we have that for zinc, the very small but very well-designed, elegant studies that Janet King did decades ago, we have for zinc. And these are probably the best depletion, repletion studies that we have for any mineral. And then for other minerals like copper, we don't have such an elegant way to correlate everything with the symptomatic progression, but we do have depletion, repletion studies where we can say, okay, what happens to these various markers when we put someone on, on a low copper diet? What happens to those markers as we replete them? And we don't have the we don't have elegant data of, you know, this cutoff means symptoms are coming soon, but at least we know what markers do and don't respond well to depletion and repletion with copper. And then there are another example would be selenium, where we don't have deliberate depletion repletion studies, but we do have finding whole populations with severe selenium deficiency in areas of China where the soil is severely deficient. And then we can say, okay, let's take a subset of these people as we fix this problem and look at all these markers and see what markers improve, not on the way to deficiency, but on the way from deficiency to a healthy level of selenium where everything is biochemically optimized. And so the question then when I made testing nutritional status the ultimate cheat sheet was what is the best case like the best case scenario is to have that that best type of data which we have for zinc or um, I would say the second best data would be for selenium and the third best data would be what I described for copper you know, to what extent does any type of data for any marker conform to that level of rigor? And of the ones that do, what are the best ones for each nutrient? And hair mineral analysis was nowhere in that equation for anything. Now, I think a really good resource, not the best resource, but a very good resource, this is the 2009 issue six, uh, volume 89, issue six of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. This is a pretty rare example where I would actually want to consult an issue, uh, you know, where it would actually be useful if you had the physical magazine type issue in front of you, because there are a bunch of highly related articles 
that all follow the same methodology for different nutrients all in one place. And I'm not going to say that this is, and it's in the supplement of this issue, I'm not going to say that this is a standalone universal resource for nutritional status testing, but I do think it is a good starting place. And if you read this article, Assessing Potential Biomarkers of Micronutrient Status by Using a Systematic Review Methodology, this is the introductory methods paper for what they did in all the rest of the biomarkers for each nutrient. So you have riboflavin, you have B12, you have vitamin D, you have copper, you have selenium, and so on. And unfortunately, they did not do this for all the nutrients, but they did it for a lot of them. And you always, of course, want to see, okay, what's been done since 2009. But in many of the cases, uh, this meta-analysis remains one of these meta-analyses for any given nutrient remains the best go-to starting source for nutritional status testing of that specific nutrient. And they basically did what I described earlier, like what is the best validated types of evidence for nutritional status markers, and then said, okay, let's find all the studies that conform to any element of this, and then let's do a meta-analysis, and let's say you know, if there are multiple studies on hair or multiple studies on plasma, when we pull them together, which are the best for the best validated markers that stand out for that particular nutrient? Now, if you go through and you look for the minerals, you'll see that there's only four minerals that are included in here. There's more vitamins than minerals, uh, but we do have... Well, I already, I already took them out here. So we do have... Zinc, uh, excuse me, copper. We do have selenium. We've got zinc and we've got iodine. Now, I'm going to cut to the chase. The only one of these four where there was enough research on hair to be included is the one on zinc. And if we go down to the findings on hair... This is what we find. So data were analyzed from three randomized, three randomized control trials of supplementation, which included a total of 93 adult participants with either low or moderate baseline status and intakes in the ranges of 15 to 25, 26 to 50, or 51 to 100 milligrams per day. Primary analysis revealed that hair zinc concentration was significantly elevated after supplementation. and. Uh, and I guess what they what they don't say explicitly here, uh, but is nevertheless true because I've I've done more research uh, than simply reading this article, is that what those studies also found, um, or not necessarily those same studies, but what depletion studies found is that ha- hair zinc does not decline when you go on a zinc deficient diet even when you start developing symptoms. Why? Because one of your defenses against zinc deficiency is to stop growing your hair. (laughs) Okay, so what happens is that even before your plasma zinc starts falling, your rate of hair growth starts falling to maintain a constant excretion of zinc in hair. 
so the net result of this is that hair zinc is is a very good index of going up in zinc status when you know that you are supplementing with zinc but it is useless as a marker of zinc deficiency even when you know you are going down in zinc status now let me take the doctor's data to HTMA interpretation guide. And I want to compare what I just said there to what they say about zinc. So one of the first things that they say, um, let's widen this up, is that although uncommon high hair zinc may be indicative of zinc overload, which could result from... Okay, that's that's consistent with what I just said, right? So the trials show that if you supplement with zinc, your hair zinc goes up. Now, they say, paradoxically, a moderately elevated level of zinc in hair may be associated with zinc wasting and a low level of zinc in cells. Zinc may be displaced from proteins such as intracellular metallothionine by other metals, especially cadmium and copper. Zinc may also uh, be... Zinc may also high in hair... I guess that means be high in hair... In association with chronic use of zinc-containing anti-dandruff shampoo, rough or dry flaky skin is a, com- a symptom of zinc deficiency, so it is not uncommon for zinc-deficient patients to use an anti-dandruff, anti-itch shampoo. A result of high hair zinc warrants further testing to assess zinc status. Confirmatory tests for zinc status include whole blood or RBC elements tests. <laughs> All right. Now, if the people who wrote this guide had gone back and read any of the materials on the validated markers of zinc status, they would say confirmatory tests for zinc status include most importantly plasma zinc. I think the reason they don't say that is because this guide is actually a marketing marketing materials for their other tests, right? So they also have whole blood and RBC element tests. So this interpretation of the hair mineral trace analysis test acts as a marketing funnel for the other tests. And notice that they don't have any citations for any of this, okay? Because, I don't know, they made it up or they took it from what's been written in a book 20 years ago from someone's clinical experience or whatever. I don't know. I don't know because they didn't reference it. Now, what I want to point out here is that what I just told you was that when you know you're supplementing, your hair zinc goes up. We know that in the validation trials of zinc supplementation that everyone was taking a supplement. So we know the reason the hair zinc went up was because of the supplement. We know from depletion trials that hair zinc does not go down in deficiency, so it's useless in that case. And we know from doctors' data, from wherever they got this information, that paradoxically, elevated zinc in hair may be associated with cellular zinc wasting rather than supplementation. How would you know that? Well, if you were supplementing, and that was the reason you would know you were supplementing, uh, you know, I, I think it's quite rare to be working with um, you know, welding with galvanized metal or whatever as a source of zinc toxicity, but you would you know, you can know your exposure in that way. Um, but if you have high hair zinc and your 
they say your whole blood or RBC elements test shows low blood zinc, but really it would be ex- extremely better to look at plasma zinc, right? Because if you have metallothionine, I mean, what they talk about zinc wasting here, but if if you have metallothionine sequestering zinc because you have heavy metal toxicity, that's going to be much better reflected in plasma zinc than in intracellular zinc because intracellular zinc is where you can have the metallothionine chelating the zinc. So in short, you know, the best data on hair is with zinc, but actually it's not really that useful. Um, it's not, it's really not that useful at all when you, when you don't have the other data. But then the question is, is it really adding, adding anything when you do have the other data? I'm not so sure. I mean, if you have symptoms of zinc deficiency and low plasma zinc, that indicates that you are zinc deficient and that you probably need to increase your zinc. And, you know, it doesn't tell you necessarily whether all the zinc's being chelated intracellularly, um, you know, but if you if you wanted to pursue that hypothesis, you could look at red blood cell zinc uh, as, as an example, as a follow-up example. You know, but I, I guess I guess my point is that hair trace mineral analysis is really not is it's really anti-validated when we do have a lot of good data, right? Like it's very anti-validated for zinc. Because you really can't use it as a starting place for zinc. You are highly likely to get thrown off by it. And at the end of the day, if the hair is telling you something useful, you must consult the other types of data, right? So I would say that when we have good data, HTMA is anti-validated, meaning it's validated to not be a very good resource um, in the sense that it's not giving you highly specific information that can add specificity to your interpretation above and beyond what you find from other types of data because the other types of data are generally better. Now, as a check against my own bias, I went on to Google Scholar and I said, okay, what what is the most recent... What are the, what's the most recent data that we have And the most, let me make sure that we're looking at the right thing here. Yes. Okay. So the most recent papers that have come out are these three. Um, at the most recent ones from 2017. The two before that are uh, a book from 2012 and a paper from 2010. Now, if we go to the most recent paper, research on the level of zinc and copper in the hair of students with lower IQ. One of the things that we find in here is that hair trace mineral analysis has been sufficient, has been scientifically proven, even though there's no such thing as proof in empirical science. Proof belongs to logic, geometry, and and other Uh, Well, really, any mathematics. Anyway, it has been scientifically proven, put in quotes, to be useful in the evaluation of a of general state of nutrient and health. And so, if we go to reference, if we go to reference three, that has scientifically proven this. 
what we find Ogboko, trace element indices inherence live of school children, which actually is the um the the most recent paper from before this. So this 2017 paper is referencing this 2010 paper. Um and so if we go to the 2010 paper, what this paper says is Heron saliva has become one of the most valuable and effective tools in analyzing trace element status in human. <laughs> I think they meant humans. But anyway, if we go to Mark 2003, which is their citation for that statement, we have a paper, Trace Elements and Host Defense, Recent Advances and Continuing Challenges. I'm just going to cut to the chase. I got the full text of this paper and verified that the word hair does not occur even once in this article. All right. Now, I know I'm going to have haters who are well-steeped in hair trace mineral analysis coming at me when I release this video. And they're going to say, look, you didn't look at the right materials. You know, Go back to this book, that book, and it's going to reference clinical experience and case reports from a long time ago and whatever. But look, this comes down... This all comes back down to the beginning. The reason... you know, I stand by what I did in testing nutritional status of Ultimate Cheat Sheet when I first released it in 2018, which is hair trace mineral analysis has an optional add-on status as a means of possibly collecting other data that may be useful when there is no validated, when there are no validated markers for a particular status of something, or when there are, or, or when you're trying to catch data that may prove useful, for example, if you have low serum copper and high hair copper, this is very suggestive of a copper transport issue instead of a straight copper deficiency. And it would have taken you longer to figure that out if you had only measured serum copper. Again, you may have caught that if you also measured seroplasmin and calculated the free copper, depending on what the copper transport defect is. Um, but, you know, it's. And then, of course, for brainstorming for these many ultra trace elements or toxic. Uh, elements you know you you might catch something on there that that catches your eye and leads you to some further investigation around that thing uh but it it just it does not have any place in the central testing for nutritional status because nothing in hair is a very well validated marker sensitive to both depletion and repletion or supplementation beyond normal and specific to the states of deficiency or excess. So, you know, is it useful? Yes. But the the usefulness is very limited and it should not be the central focus of nutritional status testing. All right. Thank you, Lauren, for your question. This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. If you want to become a MasterPass member so that you can participate in the next live Q&A, or so that you can have access to the complete recording and transcript of each Q&A session, 
You can join at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash masterpass. You can save 10% off the subscription price for as long as you remain a member by signing up at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com slash Q&A. That's Q&A spelled out as Q-A-N-D-A. These links are in the description.